Good morning, my name is Abigail Aiken, and I have attended MPC for the past year, and I am a member of the choir as well as the worship team. Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke 7, 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled a larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with the ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she is loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Bill. I'm one of the pastors here. It is great to have you with us this morning. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we come to you as we look to these words that you inspired Luke to write via your Holy Spirit, that they would bless the church from his time down through ours and until you would come again. So we look forward to that time that you will come, Jesus, but until you do, we pray that you would nurture us and teach us and direct us by your word that you would help us to understand it, that you would help us to be changed by it, that you would make us new men and women in the image of Christ. Would you do that in us and through us by the power of your spirit, through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) So a year ago, give or take, I was talking with a non-Christian woman who she... um, her husband had started coming to McLean Presbyterian. And she, as I talked to her, was decisive, driven, intelligent, direct, and adamantly atheist. 
And because her husband had started coming to the church, she basically thought her husband had gone absolutely insane. And so I got a call one day which said, I want to talk to you. So we have this conversation. She had a long list of questions through this series of conversations, every one of which was clearly thought out and conceived and part of her list. And then the one that I remember actually is one that was completely spontaneous. In the middle of everything, she suddenly blurted out, she goes, what's with the singing? And what she meant was this, what's, what's with this thing, this worship thing? Getting together and praying and singing songs to and for somebody that you can't see and somebody that you can't touch that you think controls the entire universe and everything that's in it. To use her word, she said, that's just weird. And actually, if you think about it, it is kind of odd, right? Until you get inside it, until you understand what's going on. But when you do, you realize that it's a fundamentally basic thing about being human. That the truth is we all worship. The only question is how self-aware we are of the fact that we're worshiping. But here's the dirty little secret, so to speak. Um, We don't all worship as well. And what I mean by that is this. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, let me let you in on how it works you start off when you become a believer with this great joy and excitement. I don't believe that I get to do this. That I get to commune with the God of the whole universe. This is amazing and wonderful. And as the weeks and months and years go by, it's very easy for this wonderful thing to become routine and rote and dull Any pattern can quickly become a rut. And worship is absolutely not immune from that. Let me tell you the perennial challenge, one of the occupational hazards of being a pastor. This is my job. Now, it's also my joy. But there are times where the job part takes over. And where it's easy to have the worship guide open in front of you and be following along and be thinking about, did we hit our cues right, and are we on time, and do I really know what I'm going to say when I get up and talk, and this and that, and to realize that I have spent a whole worship service not actually invested in the worship, because frankly, it took almost the entire investment I had just to get here on time. And I miss the wonder. I became a Christian when I was in high school, and I miss the wonder and the joy and the excitement I get to come sing to God. I get to tear my Bible apart trying to understand it. I get to pour my heart out to the Lord in prayer. There are a lot of times I miss the wonder of what it was like to worship when I was a new Christian. And I seriously doubt you're terribly much different. Um, Parents, how many of you, now don't actually raise your hands because your spouse will kill you if you do, but how many of you have pulled into the church parking lot And said, now everybody, let's stop this fight right now and let's go in there and look like a respectable family. I know you've done this because we've done this and our family's no different than yours. It's amazing how often this thing that ought to be wonderful becomes just not what it ought to be. Not the joy that it was nor the joy that it should be. And this morning we're going to look at the story of two people. One who gets it and one who doesn't. But the surprising thing, the oddity of it all, is that the one who gets it isn't the one most people think. 
It's the one that most people think is the one who missed it. And in hearing the story, we might just be inspired to return to worship ourselves or maybe to change who or what we worship, to see the thing that makes worship never grow old or stale. So this morning, we're going to look at just two things. First, an absolutely outlandish event, and second, an even more, more outlandish explanation. Let's start with the outlandish event. If you have your Bible, look back down. It's in verses 36 to 39. And it starts out with a dinner party. There's a religious leader, that's what a Pharisee was, a guy by the name of Simon, and he invites Jesus over to dinner at his house. And then somebody unexpected crashes the party. A woman shows up, a woman whose very presence was a bit of a scandal. Now the text doesn't tell us what it was about her that makes it a scandal. It's just the reference in verse 39 that everyone knew she was a sinner. Many people suspect she was based on the reaction that people give a prostitute, which may well be true, but we can't be absolutely sure that was it. We don't know. What we can be sure of is that everybody knew she didn't belong. Everybody knew that it seemed scandalous for her to even be there. Now, the way these dinner parties worked is people laid down on their side on couches with their head towards the table, their feet extending backwards away from the table. So as this woman of ill repute moves through the gathering, it's not that difficult for her to get to Jesus' feet. And that's when the evening went from awkward to just plain out odd. Because this woman took out a flask of perfume and she started bawling. Tears were dripping down off her face and onto Jesus' feet. And remember their world, dirty, dusty streets full of animal droppings, walking around in sandals. Jesus' feet would have been filthy from the day. And as the tears go down, little drops landing, you start seeing rivulets of of dirt going down and grime. It wouldn't have been enough to clean off his feet, but enough to get them wet and kind of muddy and messy. And seeing this, not having a towel, she uses the only thing she has to try to dry the muddy mess, which involves letting down her long hair. Now understand, that was just never done in their society. In their world, a woman letting down her hair was a highly intimate act, certainly not done in public, certainly not done at a dinner party, certainly not done for anybody other than your spouse, and certainly not done to wipe dirty feet. She wipes the feet with her hair and then starts covering his feet with kisses, the still grimy, stinky, gross feet. And then after that, she takes the perfume one of the most expensive things that they could have, and covers his feet with it. What's going on here? At that moment, Jesus is more important to her than anything else in the world. He's more important than her money. He's more important than her time. He's more important than her reputation, more important than social approval, even her own self-respect. At that moment, Jesus is the most important thing in the world to her. And you realize, in other words, she worshiped. That's what Christian worship is. It's when Jesus is the most important thing in the world to us. More important than our money, more important than our time, more important than social approval, even more important than our own self-respect. It's when Jesus is the most important thing in the world. And when you and I give that level of importance to something, we're worshiping it. When you think about it that way, we are all worshipers. Now let me speak to the non-Christians here for a moment this morning. It's really easy to say, I don't worship anything. 
I'm a 21st century enlightened woman. I'm a 21st century enlightened man. Worship is for pre-modern people. Worship is the apes around the monolith in 2001 Space Odyssey. That's not what I am. With all due respect, yes, you do. Yes, you do worship. It was back in 2005, David Foster Wallace gave an incredibly startling speech at Kenyon College. He's not a Christian, but this is what he said. Listen, there's actually no such thing as atheism. He goes on to explain, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're not evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They're default settings. By any normal definition of the word worship, you and I worship lots of things. Most primarily, it's whatever we're always thinking about. It's what our life revolves around. That means we can, in a very real sense, worship a drug or a drink or a person or a job. It means most of us worship our cell phone. Now, of course, we got to get underneath that. It's not the phone itself, but it's what the phone lets us do. We worship being the one who gets all their stuff done, their to-do list knocked out, their email done, or all the likes we get to see on Facebook, or the pictures that ought to be intimate that it lets us for a moment look at and think maybe we're accepted. And this raises the point that we can actually start to worship a lot of things that we don't even love, maybe that we don't even like that we can actually start to, by a practical definition of worship, worship all sorts of things that really become hollow. A drug's that way. So can a job be. So can a reputation. We end up worshiping counterfeits. Counterfeits that never really satisfy, that instead prove hollow. So Tom Brady, heard of him? You're in D.C., you're allowed to boo. Tom Brady, after his third Super Bowl, gave a famous interview with 60 minutes. It's, a minute, it's an interview, by the way, that he hates Christians using in sermons. Um, this is what he said. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be all it's cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? To which C.S. Lewis, writing generations earlier, said this. If you find in yourself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that you were made for another world. And you know what this means? It means you can love your spouse, but you shouldn't worship her. You might even be able to love your job, but you shouldn't worship it. You may even love your church, but you shouldn't worship it. There are many things that we can rightly love, but there is only one thing that we can worship. All the rest will leave us empty, disillusioned, and maybe even enslaved. And the point's just this. We all worship. 
The only question is who or what. And this woman was worshiping Jesus in an absolutely outlandish way. And that outlandish event led to an even more outlandish explanation. So Simon, this Pharisee, scoffed at what he saw. Look back at verse 39. It says, if this man were a prophet, he would know who this is. He wouldn't let this go on. In other words, Jesus is no man of God. He's no religious leader because if he were, he would know this isn't appropriate. To which picking a fight with Jesus usually goes badly. Jesus replies with an absolutely outlandish explanation. This is what you see in verses 40 to 47. He tells Simon a short story called a parable. He says, Simon, imagine there was a moneylender. There are two people who owed this moneylender money. One owes 500 denarii. A denarius is a, a unit of money. The other owes 50. Neither of them can pay the guy back, so he cancels both debts. So Simon... Who do you think is more grateful? Who do you think loves him more? Now, Simon probably suspects they're a trap at this point, but the, the, the answer is so obvious, he just has to give it. So he says, verse 43, well, I suppose the one with the bigger debt. Right, Jesus says. And so Simon, let me tell you what that means for our conversation right now. And as Jesus goes through the explanation, he lets us in on a detail. There's something that everybody at the dinner party has already seen and knows that you and I as the reader don't. And it's that Simon wasn't inviting Jesus to dinner for niceties. This turns out not to be, hey, it'd be fun. Come on over for dinner and let's get to know each other. It turns out that Simon has invited Jesus for dinner to put him down and show him who's the boss. Simon has in fact systematically dishonored Jesus. He has pointedly not done all the things that you always customarily in their society did to welcome a guest. Look at verse 44. Because everybody's feet were always gross, you had a servant ready with water and a towel to clean and wash their feet when they arrived. But Simon hadn't done that for Jesus. You gave a kiss as a means of welcome, but Simon had refrained. You had a small amount of perfumed oil for their head that would kind of mask the scent of the bodies that were unwashed from the day. But Simon hadn't given Jesus that oil. And understand, these were not optional things. This was demanded in their society as hospitality. Any host of Simon's stature would be required to do those things, and Simon hadn't. In other words, he'd brought Jesus over to make a fool of him. In fact, we should have been tipped off way back in verse 39. If this man were a prophet, he would know. This was an invite of skepticism. This was an invite designed to show up and unmask this rural rabbi. This was a trap, a trap meant to show that Simon understood religion and Jesus didn't. Now we see why this woman's weeping. She's weeping at how Jesus is being treated. She knows he deserves better than this. She knows it ought to be different than this. So her tears serve as the water. Her hair is the towel. Her kiss is the welcome. Her perfume is the oil. She was ready to embarrass herself and be scorned in order to make Jesus' name great. Even more, she's weeping because the one being treated this way is the one who's forgiven her sin. She weeps in grief of the sins that she knows she has. She weeps with joy for the fact that he's forgiven her and then with grief again that the one who has given her this grace is being scorned and being mocked and being ridiculed by the establishment of her day. She worshiped Jesus, 
What did Simon worship? Well, we don't know, of course, but it sure seems like he worships his own authority and his own reputation and his own position. And this is one of those passages that really just divides the world bluntly into two parts. Divides everything into two classes of people. People who worship Jesus and people who worship something else. You know, often that binary division of things feels like you're oversimplifying. When you say it's got to be this or that. Often, no, but sometimes it's really helpful to have one of these passages because it just forces us to say you can't sit on the fence. Which one are you? A or B? So here's the point. We can either be proud of ourselves or we can be proud of Jesus. You notice we got three verses left to go. Look at verses 48 to 50. There are two people in this story. There is a sinful woman who worships Jesus and there's Simon, the religious leader, by the way, who won't. And what's the difference between the two? What's the one difference? The difference is that one has had her sins forgiven by implication that the other hasn't. And if you look closer at the parable, you realize Jesus is actually doing something quite profound. He's attempting to adjust Simon's worldview. The parable started with a difference, but when you look more closely, it actually levels Simon and her. Look at the similarities. Yes, her debts were bigger, but both of them had a debt. Who was capable of paying off the debt themselves? Neither of them. Both debts had to be simply canceled. Neither person was deserving. Jesus is saying to Simon, you scorn this woman, but you're really just like her. The difference between you and her is a difference of degree, not a difference of kind. The moneylender stands in for God. The debt is our sin. And both people have a debt to God, their sin that neither of them can pay. All of them need forgiveness. In other words, Simon, you can't depend on your religious observance, your reputation, your giving, or anything else to make you right with God. Simon, you have a debt to God called your sin that is unpayable, just like she does. You know, sure, hers is more public, but that's the only difference. They're both unpayable. In other words, no human being can pay their debt to God. Jesus is trying to readjust Simon's worldview. Simon's worldview of the two of them goes like this. This woman's over here, and God and me, we're over here. Sure, you know, God's a little further over, but we're on this side. And Jesus is saying, Simon, it's not that at all. God's over here, and you and the woman are both over here. Jesus says, Simon, don't you realize there is no fundamental difference here? In fact, what it means is this. In other words, no human being can pay their debt to God. This is why we all sin. Whether we do it Simon's way, whether we do it her way, or 15 trillion other creative ways we find to sin, We sin, and sin is by definition an unpayable debt. And if that debt can't be paid, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. It's a debt that has to be paid with our very lives. We cannot pay for sin without dying eternally. And so this very same Jesus talking to Simon that night, two years later, would hang on a cross, dying to pay for sin. Three days after that, he would rise from the grave to show that he had completed the payment, that he had paid the debt, that he had risen victorious to eternal life. And so that means the question that divided Simon and this woman is simply this. Will you die for your own sins? Or will you receive Jesus' forgiveness via his death? 
She trusted Jesus to forgive her sin, and it changed who she worshipped. Simon hadn't yet. And so he scorned Jesus. Now, would Simon, would he get there? We don't know. The Bible never tells us what happened to Simon after this, because that's not the point. The question is not, did Simon repent? The question is, will you and will I? Will we turn to Jesus to forgive our sins? So how do you tell which you are? This passage demands us to simply answer the question, am I the woman or am I Simon? Because here's the deceptive thing. Simon was the religious one. Simon was the one who went to church on Sunday, Saturday in his case. Simon was the respected religious leader. And here is Jesus saying that this scorned, sinful woman is the one who really knows God. That raises the incredibly disturbing possibility that you or I could be here this morning as a lifelong church attendee and be Simon, not the woman. The possibility that you could be a long-term volunteer, a long-term giver, a long-term teacher, a long-term all of that, and still not know the gospel of sin forgiven. So how do you figure out which one you are, Simon or the woman? Two things. One, realize the order. Her sins were not forgiven because she did these things. Instead, she did these things because her sins had been forgiven. Now that we know that theologically from the rest of the Bible, but we also know it from this text. What is the last line? Your faith has saved you. What does the parable itself say? Neither person could pay the debt. So it's not that she earned forgiveness by what she did here. Forgiveness of sin comes from grace alone, only by Jesus paying the cost. And what that means is we have to be very careful to read the therefore correctly in verse 47. It's not, she did all these things, therefore her sin is forgiven. That doesn't fit the parable or the end of the passage. Instead, it's, she did all these things, therefore I say to you. In other words, if she hadn't done this, we wouldn't be having this conversation, Simon. Forgiveness of sin comes from grace alone, only by Jesus on the cross paying the cost. Second, that means it becomes really, really simple. Worship means doing crazy things for Jesus. Like giving up your Sunday every week. Like tithing. Like singing. Like talking to somebody who's invisible. Or kissing somebody's feet. Don't you want to be more like her? Don't you want to worship like that? Not content to go through the motions, but insistent on beholding God in worship. I don't know about you, but I want more in worship than I typically have. One more mark, the biggest mark, the number one thing in this passage, what does she do? She weeps. When is the last time you wept for sin forgiven? When is the last time that worship brought out the tears? You know, it's the primary aspect of this woman called out in the passage is that the one who received grace, she didn't just go through the motions. God had her heart. And because her sins were forgiven, she was moved. I want to worship like that. And let's do, let's pray. God, Father, we want to worship like this woman.
sensing and seeing the fullness of knowing that you've forgiven our sin. Of course, we're all at different places, Lord. Some of us are in a place of excitement and joy. Many of us are in a rut. Many of us are just going through the motions. Waken us a heart to worship the one who has saved us and an excitement to come and joy. Work a new heart in us, Lord, that will come in worship like her. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.